This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Did you see what is going on in Texas right now, in San Patricio County? Yeah, it's on my list to check in the morning. No, I don't have any idea what's I, going I on. Texted you, I texted you this article. I don't know where this is headed, but so this is down in a weird spot in Texas, and it says, body discovered near Mathis through GPS coordinates given to family in New York. Uh, deputies got a GPS coordinates from a New York caller, which led them to a body of an 18-year-old man on County Line Road 798 near Mathis, Texas. A phone call from the northeastern part of the United States led San Patricio County deputies to a body near Mathis. Sheriff Oscar Rivera said they spoke with a caller from New York who was waiting on his nephew to come up from Mexico. Officials said that the man received a call saying his nephew had had medical difficulties and died. Deputies got GPS coordinates from the New York caller, which led them to a body of an 18-year-old on County Road 798 near Mathis. Rivera said officials received a similar call a few weeks ago about a woman who was supposed to be headed to Alabama was later found dead after the family received the GPS coordinates. It's unclear who's been calling the families to give them GPS numbers. So, coyote, you know what coyotes are, right? I do. I was going to say it's literally the coyote that brought them here. It's like the nicest coyote on the planet, or it's a serial killer, one or the other. I don't know. Um, I don't think, like, if it's, it's only not like a, a serial killer, well, like, uh, who hangs uh, out at the border? You, you, <laughs> no, but. The coyote could be picking one person from every party they bring over. And oh, them. I think that they have a hard enough time as it is. Like, yeah. I don't think coyotes, um, that would be really bad for their business. Um, and I, so at some point in time, and I remember, I think what the case was, but it doesn't matter because the number of unidentified bodies that come across the border it's is staggering. staggering. Yeah, yeah. We've gone it's, through it. Yeah. It's really terrible. And so I don't know. I just, I, I hate to say, <laughs> I hate to say like anything about it because I feel like it's a really hard journey because they come in illegally and so they're a lot of times they end up dehydrated and they die from things like that. Like, so it's not murder. It's, uh, you know, they succumb to the elements essentially because they don't have the essentials that they need. And it's really sad, but it's like, that would actually be like the perfect setup there, but I don't see how you bring in, get any joy from that as far as yeah. if you're a serial killer. Or it's incredibly be. dangerous for all the parties involved, including the coyotes who are, I, you know, I've only met a couple. I, I worked for someone at one point in time that was, there was a lot of surveillance going on and they were like, uh, they were trying to bust. It was like a labor ring where they were bringing people in and making them work kind of like indentured servants. And when that whole thing was going on, I, I, I had some experience with it. This is like 2004 or so. It was terrible then. I'm sure it's worse now. 
And when we were doing Israel Keys and when we did Ted Bundy and when we did some different stuff, like like the time of Israel Keys down in Texas, I had the opportunity to sort of go through NamUs and look at missing people and unidentified people. And, you know, there's a lot along the border. You just, there are crimes that are sort of just like a Rubik's Cube because there's so many elements that you don't know. I don't. I feel like a lot of them are just get left behind and they die. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not saying there's anything nefarious about what um, happens to them. I'm saying because it's so dangerous and because of how sort of covert it all is, they they just don't get they don't get solved from the perspective of oh, this was an accident, this was a medical emergency, you know, this guy died of natural causes, too much stress or whatever. And it's dumped on these tiny little towns that don't have the resources to deal with them. That's one of the biggest things that I've seen. Yeah. Uh, because I, I, I where they end that. up is, uh, you know, it just so happens that, you know, they're not big places and, that's why a lot of these bodies go unidentified and it really is kind of the whoever's sending the GPS coordinates to send them. Yeah. So, so today, you know, we're, we're wrapping up the summer, summer stuff and it will, we've actually already recorded like multiple episodes for the fall. And, uh, I paused everything because of this, some events that were going on in true crime. And I like to do that every once in a while. I used to incorporate it a little differently and play some clips where we just kind of talk about a headline. Because, uh, you know, people don't like a lot of banter, so we banter about true crime. is sort of the, the thing that we do. With this one, this this whole series of stuff that we're going to talk about, I, I found something really interesting right before you and I started talking. I, I got, love it when you do that because yeah, I have no I know idea what, what you're talking about. Well, so this is tied into what we're about to, to, to go into. But I want to tell you about this case, and I figured I'd just record us talking about it because I want to hear what you think of it. These are court documents. This is actually out of the state of New Mexico, and it's literally out of the Supreme Court of New Mexico. So it's a final ruling. This case uh, is from being decided on January 23rd, 2001. They're talking about someone named Darcy Smith. And uh, in March of 1998, Darcy Smith was convicted of first-degree felony murder, uh, felony murder has always been a long-standing thing with me. The, the felony murder doctrine is a very archaic thing. But the idea is felony murder means you can be at the scene of a crime, have uh, dropped someone off at a crime, be uh, on the premises of a crime, uh, and you can end up being charged with felony murder even if you don't pull the trigger and even if no one you're with pulls the trigger. Uh, for a number of years, one of my first big projects was going to be a felony murder documentary. I pushed and pushed and pushed, but I could never get people to understand how terrible felony murder can be. Uh, so Darcy Smith is convicted of first-degree felony murder and false imprisonment. I just want to clarify, felony murder, me, um, like it's when someone dies while other people are committing felonies. The people committing the felonies can be charged with felony murder. Correct. Okay, I'm, I just wanted to, because I thought something different for a second, but go ahead. Okay, yeah, I don't I don't know that I said it exactly that way, but that's, I you appreciate just said the clarification. That, um, you, well, and uh, you said you could drop somebody off, or you could be at a crime scene, or not, you know, somebody could have a heart attack and die when you rob them, and you could be charged with felony murder because you were robbing them. 
Yeah, but you could be the getaway driver for somebody at a crime scene where a robber robs someone. You absolutely could, but my point is you have to be committing a felony at the time that somebody dies. Got it. Yeah, that, that's a very good point, and I appreciate that clarification. So Darcy Smith, she gets sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder and to 18 months for the false imprisonment sentences, and the sentences are going to be served consecutively. I don't know if a lot of people know what the word consecutive means legally speaking but there are two types of sentences you can have a concurrent sentence and a concurrent sentence means that if you get five years for one crime and two years for an adjacent crime but they're concurrent that when you're imprisoned and all the credit that you received and everything related to the sentence it's happening at the same time so you're not doing seven years if you get five and two you're doing five years but two of those years are they're for two different crimes. They're just happening at the same time. Consecutively, meaning if you got five and two, you would serve the whole seven years. So your sentence is seven years minus whatever good time and credit, etc. But those sentences both have to run. So the defendant in this case is, like I said, Darcy Smith. They're raising a challenge to their conviction that there was insufficient evidence to convict them of felony murder and that there were errors made by the trial court related to evidence uh, restrictions placed on the defense and refusing some proposed jury instructions. And also they, they were basically saying that the prosecutor had improperly commented on the defendant's right to silence and character, hmm. which all of these things are interesting. The Supreme court of New Mexico ends up affirming the defendant's convictions, but I want to read to you what happened here because it's interesting. So the, the next part of the appeal is what's called the factual and procedural background. On the morning of November 24th of 1992, in a remote area near Bernardo, New Mexico, in Socorro County, the body of a 17-year-old murder victim was discovered. The state police established the identity of this male 17-year-old from a gift certificate found on the body, which had been given to him by his parents for his birthday on November 23rd, the day before. The crime remained unsolved until late 1993 when the New Mexico State Police arranged for a Crime Stoppers television program about the murder. Several weeks after the broadcast, uh, Darcy Smith's friend, Jennifer Jones, contacted the State Police Investigation Task Force and a man named Michael Davies. Mrs. Jones provided information that implicated the defendant, Darcy Smith, a man named Eric Smith, and a gentleman named Mark Apodaca in the murder of the victim. At the time of the murder, Smith and Apodaca had been good friends for some time, and Apodaca was married to the defendant's sister. So the defendant and, the, and Smith, uh, they had been married in June of 1993. So this is Eric Smith. And shortly after their marriage, they began sharing housing with the Jones couple, which continued until the defendant and Smith were arrested in December of 1993. So that's, so basically Jennifer Jones is living with Darcy Smith and her husband. So first Apodaca was arrested and gave a voluntary statement about the killing. The defendant and Eric Smith were subsequently arrested and charged in this victim's death In a separate trial Smith, Eric Smith, was convicted of felony murder, false imprisonment, aggravated assault, conspiracy, tampering with evidence, and contributing to the delinquency of a minor. 
Apodaca had pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and related crimes in a plea agreement. As part of that agreement, Apodaca agreed to testify truthfully about the defendant's participation in the victim's death. So this girl, Darcy, that we're talking about here, she was 17 years old at the time of the murder, and she was initially charged in what's known as children's court. In January of 1994, the state filed a motion to transfer the defendant from children's court to the district court so that Darcy could be tried as an adult. And after an evidentiary hearing on the motion, the children's court transferred the defendant to district court, and they decided, yes, she is an adult. She will be tried as an adult. Subsequently, the defendant's lawyers filed an appeal with the Court of Appeals contesting this arrangement. And they raised claims of due process and speedy trial violations. But the Court of Appeals sort of steamrolled it and affirmed the trial court's actions. At trial, Apodaca testified about the events of the night of the murder. Mrs. Jones and her estranged husband, Brian Jones, testified about the defendant's later admissions regarding that evening's events. So Mark Apodaca stated that he, Eric Smith, and Darcy Smith had spent the evening drinking and decided to go out and shoot at rabbits. Each one of them was armed with a weapon. Smith, Eric Smith, had a 44 caliber revolver. Darcy Smith had a 9 millimeter handgun and a holster on her right hip. And Apodaca had a 12-gauge shotgun. Apodaca testified that they had gone shooting before and that the defendant was proficient in the use of various weapons, including the type of handgun she had with her that night. These are kids. This is a 17-year-old girl. I just want to point that out really quick. So at some point, the three of them made the decision to pick up someone at random to scare the hell out of that person. That's their words, not mine. In an area near the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, in Albuquerque, they spotted the victim. Eric Smith forced him into the backseat of his two-door car at gunpoint, and they all drove off. Apodaca said that as they were driving, Eric became angry with the victim. He asked Apodaca to steady the steering wheel so that Eric could turn around to the driver's seat to hit the victim in the face with the butt of his forty-four caliber revolver. While Apodaca steered the car during the beating, the defendant put her foot on the gas pedal to maintain the car's speed. So these three people are in the front seat of this car, barely driving, but all of them are doing something except the driver who is beating the person in the back seat, which is, so I just want to point, this is horrible, but it's also insane. I feel really bad, like giggling, but like, I'm imagining this happening and not the beating part, but like the girl with her foot on the gas and the guy reaching over to hold the steering wheel. Like, yeah. Like, so they're all involved in this and Eric pulls off of interstate 25 at the Bernardo exit. They drive a short distance off of the exit and he stops the car. Eric drags the victim out of the car and has him stand in the back of the vehicle where Darcy and Apodaca join them. After further angry words to this random stranger they have grabbed off the street, Eric begins to beat the victim, and then he shoots him twice with a forty-four caliber revolver. After the victim falls to the ground, the Darcy, the defendant, shoots him twice with a 9mm handgun. Apodaca testified that after she shot the victim, the defendant picked up one of the spent casings from her gun and said she was going to keep it as a souvenir. Smith next retrieved the shotgun from the car. This is Eric Smith. And he and Apodaca he and Apodaca each shoot the victim three more times. So afterwards, 
Darcy, Eric, and Apodaca get back in the car and they leave the victim there. They described Darcy as being excited about the shooting and hyped up during the ride back to New Mexico. At trial, Ross Zumwalt, the chief medical investigator for the Office of Medical Investigations in New Mexico, testified as an expert in forensic pathology about the autopsy of the victim. The autopsy revealed the victim had been shot 10 times and had bled to death from his wounds. Although given the extent and severity of his injuries, it was unlikely that he would have survived anyways. The victim had numerous injuries to his face. This is a 17-year-old kid. I just want to say that one more time. And it's really important uh, to understand that if you bleed to death, that means he was alive during all the injuries right. that were, he sustained. Right, that's, and that's where I'm headed with this. He's a 17-year-old kid. So kids, like people in their teens, this victim is in his teens. They're very resilient from in- injuries to a point. Most teenagers are. He had numerous injuries to his face, including bruises and lacerations caused by a blunt object that the doc said were injuries that were consistent with being struck by the butt of a revolver. Additional bruising was found on the victim's forearms, the backs of his hands, also caused by a blunt object. These bruises were described as defensive injuries, which can occur when a person raises his or her arms or hands as protection from blows. So they go through this whole thing. They find, you know, basically the court at the end of this, because I'm not, I'm not going to go through and read every single line of this. I'm just going to say at the end of this, the court decided that this person definitely committed felony murder and false imprisonment. They didn't err in anything that happened. And the convictions for Darcy Smith for felony murder and false imprisonment were affirmed. Okay. I'm saying this because first of all, it sets up like where I'm headed. That is crazy. What did you think? What do you think of this case? Well, I was trying to figure out who the victim was, but I don't know that it says. Um, it, it doesn't. Because he was a minor. So He's a minor, so it's sealed. It's insane. Like, this is, um, it. it is so, it almost, like, shifts my entire perspective on crime. Now, you said that this was in, what, 90-something? This was in the 90s, correct. Okay, you want an exact year? I have it on here. I can give you. Uh, Nineteen ninety-two uh, yeah, was when he was found. November twenty-fourth, nineteen ninety-two is when he was found. Right. Um, so, yeah, I um, it because this would be a legitimate stranger murder. Yes. Um, and uh, it's like a. I feel like um, they probably wouldn't have done it if there wasn't a group of them. Well, now I want to tell you a story. That All that took place way back in the past. Even that appeal was heard more than 20 years ago. It was heard in 2001. So one night in July of 2021, the University of New Mexico police picked up a man who they said started to make statements about murders from a long time ago. One of the murders that he referenced that police say he has now confessed to is the brutal stabbing death of a University of New Mexico student who was walking home from a party in 1988, so four years prior to this incident. Althea Oakley was a 21-year-old from Araya Hondo, She collapsed on a nearby doorstep, and she died at a hospital hours later. After 33 years, her case had long gone cold. But on Monday, 
uh, about a week ago, Albuquerque Police Chief Harold Medina, who had met Oakley as a teenager and was the first recipient of a scholarship set up in her name in 1990, notified her parents that detectives had a suspect in custody. He, this suspect was charged with a probation violation on the 19th. That would have been Oakley's 55th birthday. So the suspect was being represented by the offices of the public defender, and he was sort of shut down from talking, but he had already talked quite a bit. So as the case proceeds, they were looking to make sure that this suspect didn't have any conflicts of interest with the law offices of the public defender because of how many times his family had been represented by the office of the public defender in the past. According to a criminal complaint filed in Metropolitan Court, the suspect told detectives that he was working at the Technical Vocational Institute, which is now Central New Mexico Community College, as a security guard when he saw Oakley walking home on the night of June 22nd of 1988. He said he wanted to go talk to her, but then he had, what, then she was gone, so he decided to pursue her in his vehicle. Then, he said, he decided that he was going to hold her at knife point and rape her. When she passed by, he said that she smiled at him and said hi. So the suspect said he stabbed her in the shoulder blade and left side. When I thought about it, what made me do it, what made me attack her, was all the hatred I had for women. Because growing up, I saw how men treating women bad, and they go for the bad guys. So I try to be nice and be good, and they just didn't want that. Detectives started looking through the case file and realized that the suspect had provided details that were not in the media coverage at the time. They began to talk to neighbors who had lived in the area and the suspect's former employer who who corroborated when he would have been at work. According to a complaint now filed, this man's name is Paul Apodaca. So Paul Apodaca, he said that he left his watch one with a sun and a moon on it that his aunt had given him at the scene. And a watch that matched this description was found near the blood trail. Apodaca was living in the University of New Mexico area with his brother at the time. His brother's name is Mark Apodaca. (laughs) Several years after Oakley's death in 1995, the brothers made headlines after Mark Apodaca was convicted of murder and Paul Apodaca was convicted of raping a family member. Paul Apodaca told the judge he had raped the family member so that he could be sent to prison with his younger brother. He was sentenced to 20 years and then promptly sent to a different facility. Oh my God, what is wrong with these people? Medina, the police chief, he tells the Albuquerque Journal, the ABQ Journal, you can find all this story in the ABQ Journal. Um, He tells them on last Wednesday that the man who confessed to killing Oakley had also confessed to other homicides and sexual assaults in the area, and that he seemed like he was a poster child for a lifetime of interactions with the criminal justice system. Most recently, it appears that Apodaca was homeless, but according to court records, he had pleaded guilty to aggravated assault with a deadly weapon in March, and he had been sentenced to three years of probation for supervised probation. According to a probation violation report, he told his probation officer on July the 16th that he was going to the West Side Homeless Shelter because he didn't have anywhere else to go. He was told that he had to stay there until he was accepted into an inpatient program or a halfway house. And then on July the 19th, the officer received an alert that Apodaca had failed to show up at the shelter. This is Paul Apodaca, not Mark. 
His electronic monitoring showed that he had, was staying behind a Walgreens on Rio Grande and Central in this area. He was arrested by the University of New Mexico Police Department on the probation violation on July the 20th. When a detective interviewed Apodaca in jail, she asked if anything in particular prompted him to confess all the things he'd been confessing to the patrol officers. He said no. It was a shame it took him so long to get to this point. Paul also said he realized that what he done was evil what he had done was evil and dark, and he said the word of God had helped him overcome this struggle. This is not even the most interesting part of this, but what do you think of this guy and his brother so far? Not much. Have you like like you ask a lot of questions about like what were they thinking, what were they doing? I I hear you say like I want to know what that guy like what made him confess and stuff like that with other cases. What do you think about Paul here? Um honestly, I feel like uh he would have been what? 21 in when he, when he, he'd be young, right? When he was committing crimes. Well, I mean, he's a, working as a security guard. He, they, it says in this article, according to what they're saying right now, it's been 33 years and he is 53 now. So he would have been 20 turning 21. Okay. So, um, yeah, so he was a young adult. And so I didn't know about his brother until we just talked about it. So, I, I could have some questions, but honestly, that kind of just raw, terrible behavior, um, it's almost like, it's like, oh, they never had a chance. Like, I don't know what causes that in people, but it's, especially what you're reading, I guess my brain sort of went into shock from the the kids taking that kid and just I mean, what they? I don't understand what would prompt anybody to do something like that. Like, I guess it's a good thing everybody's got their smartphone now, so we don't have kids bored enough to go take people and shoot them. Well, this is not even the most shocking part of all of this. So, I'm a reader. Like, I love reading. Did you grow up reading? Yeah, I read. I read a lot now. But what what do you think about this? I'm, I'm going to get there. This is okay. one. Of, okay. I'm headed somewhere with this reading thing too, but, but listen, th- these guys, he is trying to explain something here. And I, I did have a revelation reading like what he's talking about. I can't wait to see like where the rest of this goes. Cause I want to, I want to see how many cases they wrap up under this guy. He is trying to explain that something about how men treated women set him off and that's how he decided to be the asshole. That's what he was trying to say. Do you think that's a cop out there? Well, so how does that make any sense? I I feel like I would be blowing him off if I said it was a cop out, but this is the revelation I had. I think this guy is not super smart. Although he has been sitting here for 33 years and not been caught by the authorities. And clearly uh, something is going on. I don't think he's super smart. I don't think he has the ability to really describe what he's thinking there. I think he's, I think he's a rage killer. Like, you know how you were talking about like serial killers, spree killers, mass killers, like some of them just have this rage inside of them and they snap and they do a thing. I think like he would just get mad. He wasn't like, like girls didn't find him pretty or something. I I, I say I, that. I, I want to be clear that I actually don't think serial killers are like rage killers. I think that anybody could kill somebody in a fit of rage. Right. Well, okay. So I don't think this guy is a planner. 
is where I'm headed with that. Right. And so that's, yeah, that's, it's a different kind of thing. He just gets mad and kills somebody. Yeah. Like he gets mad and gets all rapey and killy. And I, I'm not saying that lightly. I'm saying like, I don't think he's smart enough to articulate it any other way. So the thought that you have when you say like these people are organized or disorganized serial killers, but I'm differentiating this other person who has killed multiple people because I feel like he just get he just has loser anger issues is kind of how you describe it. Yeah, no, I mean, I would agree with that. And I feel like it because his brother, uh, let's see, he said it, that was his younger brother because he's with his friends doing like really terrible things. I would say, yeah, they're just like bored, loser, anger, angry people. Yeah. It it was like super hard for me to read all of the, first of all, that kid, that 17 year old kid that they killed that was found in 1992. So, the thing about like his that sort of makes me go, oh my god, is I kind of remember where I was at certain times doing certain things. The day they found that kid's body would have was um I think it said November twenty fourth. Okay, that was a Wednesday. So it was right before Thanksgiving. It was the day before Thanksgiving. Right. Okay. So, like, this kid had just had his birthday, and like the next day, you know what he was going to be doing? Hanging out with his family. But the part that really bothered me about it was that they literally just picked up a random person to scare the hell. Anybody. It could have been any person. Period. If If he had just been like two minutes one way or the other, it wouldn't have been him. Yeah, and I chose to read from the perspective of her case because the other cases, they're those people are pretty useless. I, I, I was going to say, like, that is a perfect example of why felony murder should exist. I know. it's like I thought about that even before I like started reading it. I, I rail against felony murder in a lot of situations. It has to be, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, legal mechanism that has to be very carefully applied. This well, is I definitely think, the case um, for it. It's well, it's, it's meant to be a deterrent. Um, it's meant to deter people from committing felonies at all. Right. Because the underlying thing would be if somebody happens to die, you could be charged with felony murder and you don't want that. Um, you know, but this sort of, um, so I would have been a kid. Um, I don't remember this. I don't remember anything about, I've, I don't think I've ever heard of any of this case, but um, it actually goes against everything that I've learned um, about true crime now. But it explains why I might have some preconceived notions of things because this sounds like everybody's worst nightmare. And this kind of thing doesn't really happen that much anymore. I don't, no, no, it doesn't. I don't even think it happened very much then. Well, it 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 really doesn't. I mean, so it's interesting how t- to me how rare these people also are, if that makes sense. Like like they're really it's really really rare and the fact that three of them got together like that's crazy. Well, so this um this guy has a very uh very long road ahead of him legally speaking like I think uh, he'll just plead out and end up in prison don't you uh, well 
I, I would say yes to that. I would say absolutely yes to that. I think that's but, what he's actually trying to accomplish, given he was living behind the Walgreens. Yeah, I mean, maybe that. I maybe don't that think that he's goal. repentant. I, which is none of my business. I shouldn't judge him, but I feel like he's um, at a point now where he just needs a place to sleep and three meals a day. Well, I'm I'm totally curious to see how all of this goes, largely because I want to hear what all he's done. And that will be when I start to form my opinion of him, when I can, when I can get like a grip around what he's done. But, but I want to talk about, I want to talk about like, I don't know how to do this part. So I'm going to, I'm, right I'm just, now he's been in custody. Um, he's just in custody for, he's just in, he's just um, been charged with rape and murder of Althea Oakley. And that happened in 1988. She was fatally stabbed, but he has confessed to three rapes and three murders. And, uh, I want to, I want to separate this one from the story and how important it is for just a second. Oh, okay. Well, I was trying to bring it together. (laughs) Yeah. So sorry. One of, one of these, one of the things that's happening here is, on July 16th of 1989, there was a University of New Mexico soon-to-be student who had graduated on June the 14th of 1989, and her name was uh, her nickname was Kate. Her name was Caitlin Arquette. She was moving into an apartment sh- just shortly after her graduation with her boyfriend, uh, Dung Nguyen. They had paid for... Uh, this apartment with the help of money that they had received from insurance settlement related to an accident. Now, Wynn was eight years older than her, but Caitlin had lied to her parents and said that he was only four years older. Her parents liked him. So they move in, but they started having some trouble once they had moved in together after graduation. And on July 16th, she had been talking to her mom saying that she planned on breaking up with them. She started to ask her mom to tell little white lies about where she was and where she'd been. She went to visit a friend on 9.30 p.m. of July 16th and then headed east down Lomas Road in Albuquerque, New Mexico, towards her mom's house. So she reached an intersection and another car pulled up next to her and one of the occupants said something to her, then shot her twice in the head. Her car drifted and crashed into a light pole. So shortly before midnight, her mom learned that Caitlin was in the emergency room. And she initially thought that it had been a car accident because that's what was being reported. But once her mom and dad got to the hospital, they learned that she had been shot. Five hours later, the police arrived at Caitlin's apartment and Wynn was home. Dung Wynn was home. He was home alone and he was completely unaware of what had happened to Caitlin. He told him that he'd been out with friends doing various activities. There was a note that Caitlin had written to him on a table in the house telling him that she would be home at a certain time. He told investigators that they had had an argument, but she was unaware that she may have been wanting to leave him. And later he went to the hospital and joined her parents, her mother and father. 24 hours passed, and tragically, Caitlin passed away. Six months after her murder, investigators announced that she had been the victim of a random act of violence. Her mom didn't believe this and started her own investigation. 
she believed that she had found evidence that Caitlin had known her killer. And she believed that Caitlin could have potentially been killed by a hired assassin because she knew too much about Dung's criminal activities, which included staging accidents and some of those proceeds they had used for their apartment. So two months before her murder, the couple had taken a trip to South to Southern California. And during this time, she had become involved in this, you know, car insurance scam. Her sister, Caitlin's sister learned that there was an accident that had been staged a few months earlier and that Dung had used a car that Caitlin had rented with her mom's credit card. The accident was allegedly orchestrated by an organization that existed within Southern California's Vietnamese community. Everyone involved in it complained of soft tissue injuries that were later treated by a doctor who was also involved in this organization. A paralegal working out of an Orange County law office in Southern California handled the insurance claim and for their part, Caitlin and Dung were given $1,500. They used the money for the apartment. Caitlin's mom believed that since she was breaking up with Dung, the other gang members might have feared she would go to the police and tried to silence her. A few weeks after the murder, mom discovered that three phone calls had been made from Caitlin's apartment. They were virtually the same time she had died, but at the time... Dung was with them. The calls were made to a Vietnamese paralegal that worked in Orange County. This was the same one that was involved in the setup for the accidents. Now, a private investigator hired by Caitlin's mom spoke to the landlord of the apartment and believed he believed that Caitlin was afraid of the people who were apparently involved in the criminal activities who were basically her boyfriend's friends. When they were around, they would make fun of her, and they only spoke Vietnamese. Often, what the landlord observed seemed to be that the center of the couple's arguments and them not getting along while living together centered around these friends. So the investigator compared the note allegedly left by Caitlin on the night of her murder to known samples of her handwriting, and he decided he didn't believe it was written by her. The landlord also claimed that three of Dung's friends were in the apartment on the night of July 17th, which would have been around the time that Caitlin died in the hospital. However, the Albuquerque police did not believe that Dung and the Vietnamese gang were involved in her murder. They believed that her murder was a random act of violence. Six months after the murder, an informant led police to a man named Robert Garcia. He was interrogated for several hours before telling investigators that he had been in a car with three friends on the night of Caitlin's murder. He claimed that one of them shot a woman in her car on a dare. So based on Robert's testimony, police arrested Dennis Martinez, Juvenile Escobado, and Miguel Garcia, who is not related to Robert Garcia. According to Robert, Miguel was the trigger man, and police discovered that Juvenile had recently sold his car, which is a brown Chevrolet Camaro. Who buys a Camaro in brown? They connected it to an eyewitness who claimed that they had been seen, they had seen someone chasing a young woman in her car on the night of Caitlin's murder. So this was an hour earlier. I think it must have been gold and they just called it brown. Oh, I see what you're saying. I know exactly what color you're talking about. Actually, that was what I had a Jeep that color. Um, Who would buy a brown Camaro? So this case falls apart when it's discovered that Robert Garcia had been in jail on the night 
of Caitlin's murder. So in April of 1991, two years later, charges against all three suspects are dropped due to lack of evidence. As a result of pressure from Caitlin's family, investigators decided to re-interview Dung. This time, he did admit to being involved in an auto insurance scam. However, he nor his friends were ever charged related to the scam, and police did not consider him a suspect in Caitlin's murder. Her family is convinced that her murder was not a random act of violence and that they were certain she was silenced because of her knowledge of the insurance scam and other illegal activities. What's crazy is, okay, this is still unresolved, but on the Unsolved Mysteries page, I found this reference. Mom's private investigator, Pat Caristo, discovered that a man named Paul Apodaca was found standing next to Caitlin's car when police arrived at the scene, driving a primer gray Volkswagen Beetle. His information was taken down, but he was allowed to leave. The police didn't run his name. He was never interviewed about the case. Mom was shocked to learn that he had an extensive criminal history, including multiple convictions for attacking and robbing women. A few years after Caitlin's murder, he was convicted of raping his 14-year-old stepsister. This is the time he rapes his stepsister so he could go to prison with his brother. Caristo, the private investigator, discovered that Caitlin's car had been hit by at least one vehicle before it crashed into the light pole. Mom suspected that the police department was involved in a cover-up related to this case. In 2003, a cold case squad investigating the case determined that Caitlin had been shot after her car collided with the light pole. This is based on the accuracy of the shots, suggesting that they were fired at a close range and a non-moving target. And as we know, in July of 2021, Apodaca confessed to police that he had murdered Caitlin and two other women. This is one of those murders. Uh, the other victim's name has not been released yet. Uh, he, he confessed to several rapes that took place in the early 90s, and he's been arrested and charged with Althea's murder. He's not been charged yet in Caitlin's case, I want to say, but, but that is like a, that is about to happen. And so um, what do you think about that? Oh, my God. Like, all of the things that happened here, it's made so much worse with the last revelation. But, like, geez. And he was at the crime scene? Yeah. Well, that they went after the boyfriend they went after like everybody um so it's another case which i don't know what order this is airing and it doesn't really matter but so he was randomly there yep and uh there's different accounts as to whether or not like exactly what happened but at least one of the officers that was involved in um coming to the out to the scene they took note of who he was and so there's a record of it like an official record and it and then it looks like um along the way there were like you said the family's private investigator like they suspected him yep and now he's confessed yeah, uh, and mom never got to find out she died in 2016. Died. So I don't. I, we haven't said who this was, and I, I, I want to do that part. Um, I I read her books. Um, I do. I'm actually in the movie adaptation of one of her books, um, and someone who was uh, from my college class wrote a, that adaptation. I wrote another adaptation. Um, but this was the daughter of Lois Duncan. Yeah. And who wrote, I know what you did last summer, hotel for dogs, summer of fear, killing Mr. Griffin. 
Uh, and I'm in, I know what you did last summer, the, the first one. And um, so she, and after her daughter was killed, and, and from what we can tell, if um, Paul Apodaco did this, it was random. Yeah. He, um, now, it seems like it, um, so would you consider his other victim, would you consider that to be random too, uh, since he was a security guard there? Yeah, I think they're all going to be pretty much random. Is it stranger? I don't know about, see, that's, technically I think most of these are going to end up being stranger or acquaintance. I don't like, it's definitely not like domestic partners or family members. No, but paths crossing to me is different than, um, this would be like a workplace killing. I think, Hmm. you know, she never wrote another mystery thriller. Uh, She she had one in the works. And she she probably was like, I brought this on myself. I can only imagine the torture she must have faced um, because, okay, so you've, your daughter's driving home. She was, you know, just out of high school yeah. and it, all this other stuff came to light. And if it ends up being that Paul Apodaco did it, like none of that stuff was relevant to her death. It was all just random. And everybody's life just got ripped apart because, um, now you said that there were other people in the car too. No, 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 that, that's a, that was the, that was Richard Garcia. That was, those people were, the charges were dropped. Right. Okay. So, um, he is, so Paul Apodaca has confessed to it and it actually lines up because not only has he confessed to it, but he was on the scene. Um, and he has a criminal history that sort of lines up and then apparently he's got counsel and he's been shut down, but it, why do you think he confessed at this point? Do you think he feels guilty or you think he just wants to go to jail? I think we're going to find out that he's sick. Um, he needs health care. I think that he needs health care. That's what I think we're going to find out. I think that's going to storing up these murders. Yeah, I I started. So this is one of those that like I was like, oh, how far down this path do we go? I saw that Rolling Stone picked up the story um, yesterday. I think so. What's going to happen with this is there's going to be a huge onslaught, and everybody's going to cover it. So I wanted to cover it now because of my affinity for Lois Duncan and you know those books that she wrote at towards the end like so so let's just talk about that for a second Lois Duncan was born in 1934 for those of you who don't know she was an American writer a novelist a poet a journalist um she was best known for a series of young adult novels that were anthology in nature they weren't related but um so she was born in 1934 her daughter dying in 1989 she was uh, 65 years old when that happened. So her career had been one thing up until that happened. She did release one more supernatural thriller uh, in 1997. It's called Gallows Hill. Um, in my opinion, it was not it was not great. It was good, uh, but it was written eight years after the previous novel, which was uh, Don't Look Behind You. Um, and then she wrote Who Killed My Daughter, which was about her daughter and a sequel to that uh, called one to the wolves uh, came out in 2013, which is three years before Lois died. And the foreword in that one was written by Anne rule. 
But um, before all this happened, um, I, I named a couple of them, but she had written, uh, I think it's like 21 or 22 young adult thrillers. Um, there, uh, multiple movies have been made from these and television shows and, and all, and all sorts of stuff has gone on with her, but this is a very, um, it's a huge deal that her, this case is closed, even though uh, she has passed away. She passed away on June 15th of 2016. So almost exactly five years ago at her home in Bradenton, Florida. Uh, they did not disclose the causes, but it was, uh, she had had, a series of strokes, um, according to her husband and the years prior to her death. This one is, I mean, it's a big deal for me because I, I always remember thinking, um, what in the world happened to her kid? Cause I, like, it was one of those things where I very much believe in the universe, giving back to you what you give out to the universe. So for her kid to have been, uh, uh, a part of all that. And, you know, she has ties to the area that I sort of did my college stuff in, in the fifties, she went to Duke university, but she ended up dropping out. It's really interesting because I remember this. Um, there's a picture of, uh, I don't know what it would have been on, but maybe the back of a book or it's the picture where, um, uh, Lois Duncan's daughter is, she's got her hand on her, under her chin. Like a graduation picture? Mm, no, I don't think it's a graduation picture. Okay. I'll, I'll show it to you. But it was on something, and I just remember seeing it. Um, and I actually would, I remember this over any other part of the story, that picture. And... It was just so sad what happened. Um, Don't Look Behind You is one of my favorite books of the child. Yeah, that was so in my mind, that's the last one. Like, like I don't like, so she wrote the other one. Gallows Hill is the name of the other one. But the, the story I heard was the way that she said it. Uh, Don't Look Behind You was, it was basically being published as her daughter died. It was published in summer of 1989, um, and there is a there's a television movie with um, Pam Dauber and Patrick Duffy, and it was I, I remember watching it a long time ago. But that that is the earmark like, in my mind. That's what I think about is like Lois Duncan. Don't look behind you. Yeah, that's um, that's tough. I there's a line in that book about. Now, I was really young at um, this point in time. I was probably too young to be reading these books, but I was. And so one of the things about that book that struck me the most, um, like it just really stuck out in my mind, was that the girl had to cut her hair with a pair of fingernails cutting scissors. Yeah. And I always thought, like, why on earth would you cut your hair with a... A pair of fingernail scissors, you know, because they had to leave and go on the run all of a sudden and they dyed her hair and she had to cut it. I was like, it seems like that would draw a lot of attention to your hair if you cut it with fingernail scissors. Well, it, you know, <laughs> I, that book, there was, 
it's funny that you say it that way because there was a, um, I was in the single digits when I read this book. Okay. I'm just saying you're like, like nine how, or something. That's how young I was. Yes. I was in the single digit. I was very, very young. So that's what, in all of the stuff that happened there, that's what <laughs> stood out to me was like, how did she cut her hair with fingernail scissors? That's crazy. Well, there's, so I don't like it. This one always was interesting to me, and I, I'm not saying anything negative when I say this, but but I'm just going to say it. The year before um, this book came out, so I'm sure she was already writing it, but in February of 1988, there's a, a movie that came out on TV called Moving Target, and it starred Jason Bateman playing a kid named uh, Toby Kellogg. And he... He's a musician that's like, uh, I can't remember if he was off at school. This is one of my favorite movies. I saw it 50,000 times. He goes home and his family is gone. They have vanished. So these killers come for them. And it's very similar story to Don't Look Behind You. Um, in, but it's told from the perspective of you know Jason Bateman's character. So when this book came out, I was so excited because it was like there was a you know sort of a, a sister pairing to it. But anyways, that was uh, that's funny. I I don't I like Jason Bateman um, in you know most stuff that I, I I've never seen anything I didn't like. But um, and I don't remember that movie. I don't think. But I if I saw it, I, I might. But like I said, and you know. When we're talking about 88, 89, I was single digit aged. So that's crazy to think about. Yeah, that is. But no, Lois Duncan had a huge impact on my childhood. And um, subliminally, because when I when you sent me the thing about uh, the guy, Paul Apodaca, Apodaca confessing, I initially was like, that seems vaguely familiar to me. Did you see the picture I sent you? Yeah, I remember that picture. Okay, yeah. And so when I saw that picture, I was like, oh, wow, I know a lot about this. Yep. Um, but it didn't initially click. I mean, obviously, Lois Duncan did. But I think I was so young, um, like I said, single digits. I think I, I subconsciously uh, blocked it some of it out because that would be a really scary thing to, like, grow up with yeah like thinking well, about her like an author writing these chilling uh thriller books and then having it happen yeah i so it, it was really strange um i i don't usually get rolling stone stuff i've been getting them recently because i went and did um uh I, like because the pandemic was wrapping up we went uh, we thought it was at least. I, kn- I know it's not really wrapping up. I'm saying the way the world responds to it was. We had gone to several concerts. Um, my wife and my family love live music, so we were going out to do several things. So, one of the things that's a side effect of like having tickets from Ticketmaster and whatnot is you end up with free subscriptions to Rolling Stones for X amount of time. And that article popped up, and I was like, "Oh my god." I, I cannot describe to you like the feeling I have. It was like really weird. I was suddenly back in like in the early nineties. Yeah, nineteen ninety, yeah. Um it's uh that yeah, it really is something to me too. And I'm actually a little embarrassed at like for you know, having forgotten that case and it 
you know, obviously it took over Lois Duncan's life like it would any parent, but it it is a big deal. And I hope, um, you know, some light is brought to this. I think from what we've seen so far, it's, you know, I, I really wish that we could find out that, like, he, it wasn't random and he's not a complete stranger. But I'm afraid that that might be what it is. And see, that's what uh, horror stories are made of. And he had no idea, of course, that he was killing Lois Duncan's daughter, I would imagine. If my, it- my guess, he saw her, followed her, got in his vehicle, didn't realize she was getting in a vehicle, realized... You know, he's still following. Now he's following her vehicle with his and was doing the same thing that he was doing to the other girl. That's my guess. Right. And so, and now I'm a little bit confused. I can't remember. Um, I remember being uh, enthralled with the case because it, like you were reading it went back and forth. There were, you know, there was actually charges brought and then dropped, but, um, and so it it went a completely different route based on just circumstances. And it illustrates really well, like how things can get out of hand really fast because not like, even though they were doing stuff, like there was involvement from other people with like the scams and the supposed drug activity or whatever. It, there was so much going on in this I know, case. And, but none of it had anything to do with I, the murder. And that's what I was about to say. It's so weird. All that stuff comes out because I'm telling you, if you dig enough, you will find something, right? On, it doesn't mean it has anything to do with the crime. It just means you will find something. And, so I remember, you know, just sort of, um, I lost my train of thought. Dang it. What was I saying? You were talking about digging and finding something. You remember yeah, like reading about the case. That. You were enthralled with the suspense and intrigue part of it. I remember. Oh, this is the part I, okay. Yeah. Sorry. So I was really enthralled with this case, but, um, I, so was she shot first or was she hit first? Uh, probably hit and then shot based on the most recent reports. Right. And so in my mind, uh, like the way I recall it from being a, a small, uh, well, a, a child, um, I thought she was driving along and had just been shot twice. Like there was no other interaction so I imagined this teenage girl driving her vehicle. And so that became a possibility to me that you could just be driving out and get shot twice randomly. And, and so that's really, that's a hard pill to swallow. Um, Well, this, this guy was apparently related to it somehow. I don't know. Like if I I don't, you know, I think think he hit her and then shot her. Right, and so like, I don't think it was random that he came across her and then killed her. Does that make sense? There's no way. Like, like I don't. I, no I, I don't think he pulled up on an accident scene. I think he made right. her crash. There's no okay. way that happened. Yeah. So this guy. But this, I'm saying this isn't a random thought, shot while driving thing. Well, okay, but so so let me let me sort of uh, okay. You're driving along, two shots, you crash your car, and you're dead. 
Okay. That's what I had in my head. This is a situation where somebody hits you, then they like shoot you twice. And she was in a coma for like a while, uh, like a day or something before she died. And so it's a different, it's actually a different thing. I would actually prefer to be hit and then like have to go through the, the process of realizing what's happening to you as opposed to just do you know how scary it is to think you could just be shot twice while you're driving? Oh, yeah. That's why I, I wasn't contradicting you. I was saying to you as a form of relief, it's way like it, that statistic okay, in your but mind. It's too bad drop I didn't infinitely. know that when I was a child because I oh, thought yeah. about that my whole life. <laughs> well, well. Uh, so that's what I mean when I say I've blocked it out because, um, I imagine I just had to block it out, but I had in my head, I pictured, um, Lois Duncan's daughter. I didn't know her name when I was a kid, um, getting shot while she was driving along. And actually it was sunny outside when it happened, but it clearly happened at night. And so I was unaware of that, but I'm, I'm just saying I was a child, so I didn't pay as much attention to the details. Well, that is all for today, and we'll be back next week. Do you have anything else you want to add on to this? No, I really hope that they, um, I hope this all pans out. It sucks that she died before. Um, I guess she knows now, though, right? Yeah, I mean, if we go back to the universe, we she knew in 2016, you know? Thanks for joining us as we move from summer into fall. And we'll see you next time. Don't forget to check out our sponsorship partner, LabradiCreations.com. You can use the code CRIMEXS there to get a fun pop pet portrait of your very own pet. Thanks for joining us. Dun, dun, dun.